Hello and welcome to Spadework, a podcast where organizers from all kinds of places and struggles talk about the hard lessons learned through their political work, what organizing means for them, what keeps on going wrong, what great victories they had, and what made them. What has marked a recent turn in dominant discourses about political action and organization is the growing understanding that resilient, rewarding, and effective political organization means engaging with people beyond those that immediately agree with you. It means systematic, targeted, and rigorous engagement with people beyond your immediate social and political networks. Rather than transactional organizational approaches that rely on people's already existing political beliefs and advertising a project that they relate to, people are increasingly interested in transformative organizational approaches that cultivate, nourish, and develop new relations and individual as well as collective capacities. Meeting people where they are, in order to discover what they can become. In this process, it is also increasingly becoming common knowledge that in order to garner people's support for an initiative or a demand, no matter where they stand on the matter when they're first encountered, one has to be able to take their concerns seriously, honestly and empathetically. In this Toolbox episode, we talk to Steve Hughes of the European Community Organizing Network and union scholar and organizer Jane McAlevey to talk about the one-on-one. -on -one. While there is a growing recognition of the importance of one-on-ones, the question on how to do them is the subject of a great deal of debate. In what order should one structure the conversation? What elements must be in the one-on-one? -on -one? What should it reveal? And when? McAlevey and Hughes Each have their own formulation, but Hughes, borrowing of Berlin-based organizer Tashi Enders, is instructive. A good one-on-one -on -one is co-produced by being able to connect firstly and necessarily on an emotional basis. You have to be able to connect with individual frustrations, despairs, anger and pains to be able to connect that real feeling to the issue in question and the vision of organization capable of transforming that relation. This became abundantly clear in a recent organizing workshop we gave to a workers' organizing initiative. We asked them why they joined the initiative and what the top three things were about work that they would like to change, if they could. The results were rather stunning. Of the 15 workers present, 15 distinct and individual reasons were provided as to why each worker joined the initiative. However, when asked what they would change about work, the overlap grew dramatically, as each of these individuals readily agreed about what needed to change. This anecdote provides insight into the fact that even though specific issues might be broadly felt, the issue alone does not move people into action. Rather, for each individual encountered, an individual bridge of meaning has to be constructed that allows them to cross the Rubicon. 
It is only once we understand the concerns, the questions and the doubts that other, the other has in relation to our initiative, the issue and our demand, that we can actually begin to build that bridge. The problem, the answer and the plan have to make sense to them and their experience. Such an approach is no doubt uncomfortable. Our ability to genuinely and radically listen and understand each other isn't exactly a skill that's been cultivated in neoliberal society. And the ubiquity of social media hasn't necessarily encouraged this skill either. However, as Hughes argues, quote, there's no reason to fear a one-on-one. -on -one. It's the bosses and the ruling class that should fear it because it is our single most powerful tool to overcome division and the atomization they try to force on us in society, end of quote. Indeed, for McAlevey, the one-on-one -on -one is critical because it also functions as a mechanism of political education tailored to the individual. This is because over the course of the one-on-one, -on -one, the organizer cuts through the noise and buzz of media apparatuses beyond our control to guide the individual through their experience to uncover the root causes and specific mechanisms of their exploitation, their domination and oppression. In this process, the individual worker or community member, regardless of where they stood at the beginning of the encounter, takes the very first step to plot a path to changing their lives and their environment directly through the capacities they develop in combining with others in their life world. Of course, for McAlevey, the one-on-one -on -one is inseparable from the broader system in which she integrates it, her CIO model of organizing. Within this process, the one-on-one -on -one also functions as a means to identify organic leaders. Those leaders within a specific base that have more influence than other in being able to mobilize their co-workers. Of course, both our interlocutors underscore the asymmetric nature of the conflict. McAlevey highlights the control of the environment enjoyed by capitalists. It is a power they use to structure the environment in their favor, something that's resulted in entirely new labor processes that undermine any sense of worker collectivity. This requires experimentation, of course. But we maintain that the one-on-one, -on -one, or the process of reaching to each worker no matter what they believe, and developing trust, community and division, remains a fundamental step, no matter the scenario. This toolbox entry, with Hughes and McAlevey, forms the first part of what will be a longer toolbox series just on the one-on-ones that will be released over the coming month. Over the course of this conversation, then, we uncover multiple functions of the one-on-one -on -one conversations. While often we think of it as a technique that, if applied correctly, can guarantee commitment from others, our conversations here reveal that one-on-ones also function as a means to identify issues within a community. 
They help us uncover the range of discourses and frames through which people come to understand issues and the demands circulating around them. What's more, they also operate as a foundational feedback loop through which an initiative comes to understand itself, the issue and the demand through the eyes of the very social basis they wish to empower and transform. To learn more on one-on-ones, the European Community Organizing Network, or the work of Jane McAlevey, please follow the links in our episode description. Steve Hughes, thank you for uh, coming here today. We're really excited to talk to you about one-on-ones. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Cool. So, um, for the audience, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you started organizing? Yeah, I've been uh, involved in organizing work of some form or another for the better part of 20 years now. Um, I got my start in basically my university days, um, working on, in the student movement. And, um, it was kind of a period marked for me by the mobilization that basically me and everybody I knew, uh, was involved in to, uh, meet the meeting of the, the WTO in Seattle. Um, and, and that, that was, was sort, sort of like, like a, a glimpse at kind of the power we could build uh, and kind of has set me and I think a lot of people that I came up in the movement with in the direction they were on. Um, and in that time, I was also very early on drawn to the labor movement as um, an expression for my work, both because it just sort of felt like home uh, coming out of a you know union family and uh, those just felt like people I uh, felt comfortable with. And also because of the immediacy of it. And I was early on drawn to like the idea of like, let's not, let's not organize for solidarity for people over there, but let's build power here was a really compelling uh, piece of that. And I think I early on connected that with the idea of talking directly to the people who are affected by an, an issue. issue. Um, um, as, as being, being a, a really, really powerful part of that, which I think was prepared me for, you know, seeing the real value of one-on-ones as a, a method of organizing. Um, and with the real sort of first systematic training I got in this was when I became a union organizer. And I actually remember it was actually still my interview. It was one of those kind of situations where you, your interview is like a weekend long um, and you go to basically knock on doors with a, an experienced union organizer and they see if you're any good at it. <laughs> <laughs> you got the chops or not. <laughs> if you have any potential or if they want to move on to somebody, somebody else. else. <laughs> um, but I remember uh, I was actually knocking on doors in my hometown uh, where I grew up and I just had this experience where I like knocked on a door in this little tiny neighborhood and on the other side of town where I grew up where like this, this like un, unknown to me, uh, Muslim community 
had, was living. And like this little pocket. And I had no idea it existed. And I just had this realization that like, wow, you can be in a town you grew up in and not even know who's there. And you don't know who's there. You don't know what's going on until you actually get out there and like systematically knock on doors as part of an organizing process. And so that was like, I think that was the moment where the light bulb went off for me in a real way, like where I was hooked, like this is, this is the work that I want to do. Um, and I, you know, I obviously got the job and uh, ended up working for, I guess not obviously, but I did get the job. <laughs> um, I did get the job and I worked as a union organizer for seven years um, from there and then ended up moving into other realms, political organizing with the Working Families Party and now uh, still doing that, but also working in an international context uh, between the United States and Europe, um, you know, basically supporting movements, organizers, trying to build capacity. Um, and it seems like a through line for all of that is um, that, you know, you can't escape the need to do one-on-ones. You start to feel like you're, you're flying blind so and that was an experience I had in the labor movement where you're constantly um, fighting the boss and fighting an anti-worker committee. And if you don't do one-on-ones, you don't know what's going on in the workplace. So um, that, those were sort of my experiences and my background that led me to uh, seeing the value in these. Awesome. Um, Steve, can you tell us what a one-on-one is? Um, and should we be scared of it? Because when I think of um, like the first times that I went out to do like a structured one-on-one, it was pretty terrifying. Like I, I, I had this in my head that like, am I going to do this right? Um, I don't know if I'm experienced enough to do something like this. Um, but I, I, I feel that, the, that I don't know, it, when I thought about in general terms, like, you know, I have one-on-ones with people all the time, actually. And it's just mm-hmm. a way of kind of rethinking how to communicate with someone on a more kind of political basis. But like, what, what, what's a one-on-one? And um, is there something to fear about it? Well, I mean, the bosses and the ruling class should fear it. Um, it is like our, <laughs> it's our um, single most powerful tool to overcome division and the atomization that they try to force on us in society. Um, But I don't think we should fear it. I think we should, I mean, some of my best experiences have been on -on one-on-ones, like the kinds of experiences that stick with you for a lifetime, Uh, the stories you hear, the insights you gain, um, that, you know, the the ways in which you are taught every day something new uh, by talking to working people, and building relationships that to me is a not something to be feared but it's actually something to like relish and actually is like the stuff that charges the batteries um and keeps keeps you going so um i don't think that i think what a one-on-one is is you're right i mean we have one-on-ones all the time in our life it's ultimately it's a conversation and the people who are um curious about their fellow human beings um it becomes a very natural process 
Um, it's not a uh, mechanical, unnatural experience when you just realize that what you're doing is having a conversation. That said, um, part of the practice of it is that it is, it is a structured conversation. Um, just like our movements are not just free form, let's just do whatever. We have, we have a vision, we have uh, an idea of the society we want to build. When you break that down to the sort of component parts of that movement is built through lots and lots of one-on-one -on -one conversations, you realize that it also needs to be that there's a structure to a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Um, so I would say a one-on-one -on -one is, it's, it's a structured conversation to move people into action, um, to uh, make change on the things that directly affect them in their lives. And it's, it, again, it's just an essential building block of the movement we need to build. Mm -hmm. And um, what is the, the structure of a one-on-one? -on -one? Yeah, so this is, this is um, I laugh to myself because uh, much too much organizer blood has been spilled over arguing over <laughs> the, the perfect structure for a one-on-one. -on -one. Um, you know, depending on where you got your training, there are four steps or five steps or six steps. There are debates that are much too rigorous for their own good, uh, not much too, much too uh, emphatic for their own good about whether we should use something called agitation or not. Honestly, I think um, uh, to some degree you can like set that aside and not get caught up in the like the methodological debates um, about one-on-ones. Um, I I actually was working with somebody recently uh, who's done a lot of one-on-ones in Berlin, in fact, and um, her formulation I found was quite sort of simple and just sort of like broad, which is, you know, you're trying to speak to people's emotions, their hopes, and then move them into action. And whether you like are agitating them to speak to because they're angry and they need to like get off their ass and do something, um, or you're like trying to tap into their hopes for like how their workplace could be better. Um, and it's not going to change if they don't do something. So they have to move into action. Like there's like the basic framework, almost all the methodological things that you need to like connect with people. You need to like connect their, their real world concerns to uh, the, the campaign or the union organizing drive or whatever the thing is, and then move them into action um, get the commitment to come to the meeting, you know, get their phone number or like whatever the thing is, sign the union card, sign the petition, whatever the thing is, it's a flexible tool, but like the basic idea is you connect with people, uh, on a human level, you, you build a connection over hope, fears, concerns for the world, and, um, you move them into action. I would, I would say one other thing about this is that like, I think it's a really good practice for people who are versed in movement politics to be able to like take their movement politics or their ideological groundings or their analysis of society and turn it into something that can like connect with somebody on the door. I think it's a discipline that every 
movement maker should have is like how do you talk about the big ideas on the doorstep in concrete ways where somebody can see the problem on their job as connected to something bigger if you can like master that um you can we can build truly potent movements um and it comes from just practice and trial and error absolutely and i feel that that kind of connection like the the medium is obviously the one-on-one but the kind of uh the, the glue is really to be able to listen to someone right like to be able to like it begins with that emotional like i need to find out what you care about because if i just come from some kind of abstract thing and you're not particularly there isn't a clear kind of connection to that then you're not going to be interested in it so I, so listening plays a big part of this right totally absolutely it's um i mean there's all kinds of clever ways that people get trained or reminded to listen when they're being trained on one-on-ones you know you have two ears and one mouth uh you know the the 70-30 rule is another one that oftentimes people learn you're supposed to listen 70% of the time and talk 30% of the time but that's absolutely the case and it's not again it's not a mechanical process it's not like you're sitting there watching your watch and like ooh is it 70% should i should i wait to say something like like some of the best one-on-ones i've had in my life have been like just really powerful conversations and the listening came from like the ability to like hear the emotional content underneath what was being said and to draw that out and whether i was talking 30% of the time or 40% of the time that's not the like measure it's like are you building the bridge to somebody's lived concerns the place where they're starting and like moving them into action by hearing where they're at and then drawing them forward into into the fight and that's just that is absolutely a listening process first and foremost yeah i i feel that that that's probably perhaps one of the biggest the one of the hardest kind of hurdles to get over is the the ability to develop that kind of uh that kind of emotional ear because i feel like at least in, in my personal background that like i don't know when there was like family debates or debates with friends on politics what you're waiting for is the other person to shut up for a moment in order to butt your analysis in and then tell mm-hmm. them how they're wrong but in an organizational con- like when you're trying to actually bring someone into a transformative process it's the opposite right like you're not trying to like shove analysis down their throat you're trying to start you're trying to get them to say more in order for you to better understand where they're coming from. Yeah. No, I think that's totally right. I mean, I have done trainings actually in Germany on one-on-ones and I always joke with people like how many of you know somebody who talks in manifestos? Um like there is a certain training around uh stating your political beliefs in the format of a manifesto that does not work when, when you're, you're at, at the door. door. Um, that's what I'm saying is like, how do we change the, what we are, our manifestos into something that can move people into action? Um, but yeah, the, um, some of the best house visits I've had, some of the most like thrilling because you just feel the, 
the crackle of potential for a movement when you see somebody like just like light up we you know in the union world i was in we you would say this is a very like american thing to say i think but you could say somebody was on fire for the lord with the union like when they just have this like epiphany of like Saul falling off their horse of like oh my god and some of the some of the like most powerful moments of that have been where I come into the house visit and I don't make a statement I just ask one question after another and the person is putting together their own analysis as they go and like they're like they're developing like their proto analysis of capitalism through just like an inquiry that you're having the privilege to be there part and watching happen. It just like is a thrilling experience to be part of that. Um, and you don't, you don't ever say, you don't ever say like anything. You just like get to be there, ask questions and like bear witness. And that's a powerful. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. Um, so how do you, um, how do you conduct uh, a one-on-one? -on -one? What should people uh, prepare beforehand in order to do this kind of uh, emotion, hopes, um, action kind of structure that you were mm -hmm. talking about from the Berlin Comrade? Um, because I think you already kind of said that, you know, you just can't, there has to be something that is driving this conversation towards some kind of actionable conclusion. Um, mm -hmm. what should people, how, how can people best prepare for that kind of conversation? What should they already kind of have on hand? Yeah. yeah. And by the way, that, that Berlin comrade, it's, there's no secret to it. I, I, her name is Tashi Endres and she's very much, you probably know her. Uh, she's very much involved in the, the movement of the, the housing movements and so forth. So, um, uh, I mean, I think preparation for one-on-ones, Number one, I would say knowing what the goal is at that moment. Um, like if you show up at the door and you have a great conversation with somebody and the conversation ends with, wow, that was a great conversation. See you later. Um, then you're sort of doing it wrong. You need to like have uh, an idea, like, it needs to be connected to the strategy of the campaign and the tactics of the moment. Um, so in a union organizing drive, just to sort of use my experience coming up, there was a phase of the campaign where we needed to get people to sign cards saying they supported the union. And we needed to get 70% of the workers in the workplace to sign those cards. So for the first phase, our one-on-ones are emotion, hope, action, and the action is sign the card, stand with your coworkers to, to have a voice in changing the workplace and you know gaining dignity in our jobs. Um, then once we do that, the next phase is, you know, there's going to be an election, so we have to go back to all the folks. We have to have another one-on-one -on -one with them. We have to, you know, there's different tests of leadership, you know, Will you wear a button in the workplace on a button day? Will you come to the meeting? Uh, will you come to the, the rally? Whatever the, the but like the one-on-one -on -one should have a goal and the goal should be prepared in advance and be connected to the tactics and strategy of the campaign. 
Um, and then I think the other thing to prepare is just to just practice it. Like, like uh, practice with each other. Like do role plays. Like don't fear the role play. Don't think you're too good for the role play. Um, role plays are great teachers. Um, and you intuitively sort through things in those those sort of practice sessions. And even organizers have been doing it for a long time can get out of practice. And so like, just sort of, you know, just, you know, keep it, treat it like a, a muscle you have to keep in shape. That's great. And um, what an interesting question would be, like, I feel that the, that one thing is to kind of, um, to kind of cold call someone, like to talk to someone for the first time. And then mm -hmm. another thing is say, talking to people that you already know like friends, family, coworkers, mm -hmm. about um, some kind of organizational initiative. And I wonder if the one-on-one -on -one takes a different kind of form in these different formats. Because like, um, I feel that in some of the, the conversations I've had with people that say like, okay, I understand I need to talk to my coworkers, but like they already know me and I already know them. And if the relationship in that case feels like more fixed, and mm -hmm. they don't know how to begin the process of breaking out of that, as opposed to when you just cold call someone on the door or on the phone or something, there isn't a kind of previously established relationship. And I was wondering if these kind of take different kind of approaches to getting people to take action, if you have any tips or something. In many ways, it's, it's the same. It's just levels of nuance uh, in some ways. Um, I have jokingly said that uh, being trained as an organizer has always made me like really good at going to parties um, because uh, nobody ever finds you more interesting than when they're telling you about themselves. Um, and so like even people you know uh, doing one-on-ones and relational meetings, it's like... Uh, uh, it's an ongoing thing and it's an ongoing practice and it's like people's lives change and there's ups and downs. And so having a relational culture in our organizing is first and foremost, I think a value of just like doing one-on-ones. I'll, I'll just use an example. Like right now, I, the working families party where I, uh, which is my political home, um, we're doing an online staff retreat where it's just like we're just setting up one-on-ones with wow. each other and just to like instill the idea that we are building a relational culture of like we are in this together and we're not just like robots trying to like win elections. We're like connected and having a... So um, I I think it's mostly levels of nuance, but like people still need that sense of connection um, even if you've been working together, comrades in the fight for a long time. And so one-on-one -on -one, and like, I just want to dispel the idea, like my joke about going to parties, notwithstanding, I just want to dispel the idea that it's somehow a manipulative process. Cause I hear that a lot. Like, oh, you're just trying to manipulate people into doing things. And it's like, if that's all, it, if that's what it feels like, you're doing it wrong. Like, that is like if if you go into the one on one and you're thinking ahead, how am I going to like 
get this person to do exactly the thing I want. And like, that's all, and you're not connecting on a human level. Um, it's, it, it won't work. And like working people can see through it and our friends can see through it. So it's like, people know when they're getting hustled, <laughs> people know when they're getting hustled. And so, um, it just, it just sort of, it's part of the discipline of like, of, uh, how you, how you hold yourself, how you center yourself. And I think that applies whether it's a cold call to somebody that you've just knocked on their door or a one-on-one with somebody you've been in the struggle with for 20 years. Yeah, I feel that the manipulation thing imagines like a kind of already existing relationship or something like that. Because I mean, at the end of the day, what you have to do is establish a sense of trust. Like you're not going to get action out of people without a sense of trust. And like you said, like people know when they're being sold snake oil yeah. or not. And so they're yeah. just not going to trust you and not going to do it. Yeah. And it, it like, like to say it's manipulative, therefore I'm not going to do it is like robbing the agency of people. Yeah. It's paternalistic. like, it's very paternalistic. Like it's to say like, I'm just not going to show up because me showing up is like manipulative and uh, they like people are, need to spontaneously just self-organize. And I'm like, okay, but like, that doesn't happen, number one. And number two, when you show up on the door and if you're full of shit and they see it, they're not going to organize either. Um, so you have to like, the first rule is showing up. And um, one-on-ones are like essentially showing up uh, if, if you're going to organize. Totally. What kind of tips do you have for what should happen after a one-on-one? Like say you just knocked on the door, you talk to your coworker about um, some kind of initiative um, and you had a really great conversation and they want to do, they want to take action. Um, what's the next steps that you should have in mind? Like what should you follow through with? Well, I mean, first of all, follow through with anything you said you were going to follow through with. <laughs> I mean, don't, don't write checks you can't cash in a, in a, a one-on-one because that's, going to ruin trust so if you like say you're going to get the answer to a question because you don't know the answer and you'll get back to somebody like you do it um but again i think it's about having a clear strategy for the campaign and understanding of how the tactics of the moment apply to that strategy um so it's not like, let's just go do some one-on-ones and see what happens. Let's go do some one-on-ones because we have a meeting coming up that's very important that we have good turnout for because it'll launch the campaign in a real way in the neighborhood or in the in the workplace or whatever. So go to the one-on-one, have the meeting, get the commitment that, yes, you're going to come to the meeting, um, and then follow up. And then it's a question, like, the other, my other... Uh, my other percentage-based rule for organizing that I just made up myself is organizing is um, 70% reminding people to do things and 30% sheer boredom. Um, <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's not always the glamorous stuff that gets people into motion. It's like, like reminding them about the meeting, like asking them to bring their friend that they said they were going to bring, you know, remember how you said you were going to bring so-and-so because you thought they'd be interested or have you talked to them yet like so like after every house visit in a union campaign i would go around the corner and write like a page of notes of everything that was said all the things i needed to remember to follow up on 
all the people they said they knew and could talk to, like, so I could, like, you know, uh, you know, because you talk to 50 people in a week, you're not going to remember all those details, but you need to, to systematically follow up. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I recently had a conversation with someone at, um, like, we were trying to figure out how to uh, better plug people into the, the housing initiative here. And then um, we were like, okay, well, we have to identify clear tasks and things that people can do rather than just say like, oh, hey, here's the, here's the working group, just hop in and jump in on something. Like we actually mm -hmm. have to find out what people can do. And the person, like the, the other comrade I was talking to, and I was like, but do you, like you mean to say that I'm going to have to spell everything out and remind people to do these things? And I was like, yeah, that's actually just most of the work. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the rest is the boring part. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that pretty much covers all the questions I've had, Steve. Um, is there anything else that you want to add that you think uh, our audience should know about one-on-ones or other kind of pro tips that you uh, want to share? I mean, I would just share a story about like, the a mentor that I had in the labor movement um, where there was something going on where it was like the campaign, there was some fight on among the like leadership of the campaign or the management of the union. Like there was something going on and somebody walked into the office and, and just said some bullshit. I don't even know what it was. I, all I remember was that this guy said, whatever, man, I'm just going to go talk to some workers now. And like that always stuck with me because like that, that orientation that that's the ground truth of a campaign. Um, and it's not to like, it's not like romanticizing. It's more like, like I said at the beginning, when you're an organizer and if you're not out there talking to people in the base, you start to feel disconnected you start to feel like you're rudderless um, and you need that, like you crave that. And like, I think um, just sort of like centering that is like, it's not just a nice thing to do or it's like a good extra tactic. It is like the thing that grounds you as an organizer and makes the work make sense. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. It's your actual eyes and ears, right? <laughs> totally. Like people spend a lot of money on polling and focus groups and politics and all just that. Talk shit. to people. <laughs> just if you're out there organizing, you have a, a daily focus group every day <laughs> on the doors. You know, you know what people are saying, and you know what you're saying doesn't work or it does work. You know your message is on or off really quick when you are out there just on the doors on a regular basis. Well, uh, that was really great, Steve. Uh, thank you so much for your time. It was really incredible to have you here on Spadework Podcast and. Um, Thanks again. Stay yeah, healthy. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You too. <laughs> awesome. Jane, very great to have you on here. Very, very excited to have you doing the one-on-one -on -one with us. Um, we were wondering, uh, in order to think about one-on-ones, um, what is structure-based organizing and how does that help us focus where to have one-on-ones? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's really nice to be here. 
Um, and I, it sounds like talking about organizing is always my very favorite uh, topic of conversation. So um, what is structure-based organizing? There's basically two broad, there's two broad spaces in which activism happens. So I'm just gonna start broadly with the word activism. There's this giant generic category called activism. Those of us who are upset that the planet is burning or flooding, depending on where you're sitting at the moment, um, that we have crises you know, all around us. Um, and the question is, what's our approach, right? What's, what, how can we as a, I'm just gonna say progressive kind of left, whatever the word we use are, there are different words in different countries, but how can the people who want to like get rid of a political economic system that's destroying the planet and destroying all life on it, including humans, like how, what's the best way for us to focus our resources? Like to me, that's the question I wake up thinking about each day. Because obviously millions of us would like to change things, if not hundreds of millions, right? I don't think most people wake up in the world thinking things are great, you know, unless you're Jeff Bezos and you're up in a rocket or something, <laughs> um, which I hope crashes like now. But anyway, so um, I think for those of us who wake up in the morning, part of part of what I've been trying to do by writing books and you know, going on podcasts, stepping out of organizing work day to day sometimes is to share some lessons and some thinking about uh, an overarching concept, which sometimes seems obtuse uh, to, on the left or like hot, like debatable on the left, which cracks me up in some ways, which is how do we win? I'm actually not just interested in just going to meetings. I actually am interested in how do we win because the planet's blowing up right now. Um, and there's a lot of workers and a lot of pain uh, all over the world. So for me, if you think about there's activism and then there's what's the approach we take to changing the world. Lots of people with a lot of passion. That's really great. You know, we need a lot of passion, but we also actually need to win and winning begets winning. So the more that workers in this case, or people, it's climate justice movement, like the more people see other people winning, I think the more people will commit to doing the work to try and actually make radical change in their life. Okay, so that's 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 an intro to trying to get to the question of what structure-based organizing is. So as I understand, as I understand the world um, from my mentors, you know, I try to say everywhere, like I didn't wake up with all these ideas. I had some amazing mentors in the trade union movement in the United States. I don't think you could get better mentors. I don't blame them for my failures, but I had amazing mentors. So I think, you know, I started doing environmental work which is very activist oriented. And I was doing, I was doing the environmental justice part of the work, meaning I was already embedded in largely poor communities and communities of color in the United States on the US-Mexico border in the Maquiladora zones, like in a lot of places where there were a lot of things wrong. Um, and even, even though I was embedded in with a group of workers and people where we could have chosen to do structure-based organizing. I was very young and the approach was very much an activist approach. So now what does that mean? What is this difference? In structure-based organizing, we understand that there are humans who are in relationship to one another, not by their choosing, but by something else, some other social condition or material condition in their life. Uh, so the workplace, We'll come back to the gig economy and what they're trying to do to destroy the, the remains of the workplace. But in the workplace, people come to work not because they're best friends. They come to work because they have a job. 
Their relationship is defined initially by nothing except an employer who hired them. So when people show up to their job, that's a, what I call a sort of, or what I think other people as well call like a structured environment. So humans are in relationship to each other, not differently than maybe where they live or where their kids go to school, right? There's a number of settings where relationships are structured, not by this is who I want to spend my day with. Um, so where your kids go to school is an example of that's a structure. Parents see each other and the parents picking up their kids at, you know, when they're young in school. Um, parents meet waiting for their kids at the bus stop or somewhere. They're in relationship, not because they're best friends, but because their kids happen to share a school. Workers come to work, they're in relationship that's structured by the employer. Um, if you're in a mosque, temple, church, you know, community of faith, that's another kind of structure. So structures are places where people come together and the overriding reason that they're together and it's in a regular routinized relationship, right? That's key. And the reason that they're together is not because they already politically agree on most everything. So that's the distinction from sort of non-structure-based approaches to activism, right? Because it all falls under the category still of sort of like activism. But then within activism, there's what I call charity, you know, which is mutual aid work, which can be rattled, cannot be. There's advocacy work, which is most of what passes for what goes on in the whole world, I'm convinced at this point. I no longer, I used to only feel safe talking about what's going on in the United States. I feel increasingly safe talking about what I'm seeing in most countries in the world, most, not all and not evenly, but most countries, there's people are engaged in advocacy. And on a good day, they're involved in mobilizing. And the difference between advocacy and mobilizing is that in the advocacy part of the work, where literally people are advocating, even it might be for a good position, like we want to save the planet, but it's usually paid professionals. They have communications folks. They do a lot of media work and polling. They have lawyers, they have a legal approach to the work, like ordinary people aren't really very involved at all. And the distinction to, to mobilizing is that ordinary people start getting involved, might be all ordinary people, not professional staff at all. But the difference is in all of those arenas, when you show up to the first meeting or any subsequent meeting, you are there because you agree on what it is you're trying to do. So you politically agree already. Structure-based organizing is the one place where I think we have to work much, much harder to understand the mechanisms and the methods that help people um, come to similar political conclusions. But it's like a radical political education process. And it isn't because we're handing them a newspaper with small font and no pictures and a lot of ink. It's because in a structured environment, certainly in the workplace, I think that's the best of all the structured environments, you know, there's an employer and there's workers and there's a different set of interests there, though that's not obvious to everyone when they, you know, start their job necessarily. Um, so structured organizing and structure-based organizing is about working inside of structures where people do not politically agree. Mm -hmm. And it's building towards that kind of unity. And therefore, I think 
power, the power that comes from a structured environment is that you've brought more people into having a different outlook on the world, mm -hmm. that they are learning to struggle together and they're learning to work through and contemplate questions um, that frankly, they may never have unless you're organizing, unless you're engaging with them in a, in a, in a, in a structured environment where again, that when they go to a departmental meeting at work, that's not because they politically agree with their departmental head. It's because the departmental head called the meeting, right? To give some <laughs> new instructions yeah. at work, right? So that's like, that's the big difference. And the last thing I'll say quickly is, you know, we are all under capitalism at this point. I mean, it looks different in different countries, uh, but uh, sadly for the planet and most people, there's not really a contesting there's not much of a contesting political economic system out there. Politics might look different, but the economic system is about profit and greed at this point, whether you're in state capitalist China or whether you're in Germany or my people in Sweden or the United States. So, or fill in the blank, you know, South Africa, whatever, wherever we go. Um, so the workplace and workers ability to shut down the only thing that capitalists care about, which is profit, and to interrupt the profit system, I think remains, if not the most effective, you know, one of the most effective, if not the most effective um, weapons available to ordinary people to save the planet and save life on it and create dignity. Mm -hmm. I, you touched it a little bit, but I would like to have like a very concrete uh, a sentence to that too. The question, what is the goal or the goals of a one-on-one -on -one or of that practice in that structured environment? Yeah. So first of all, winning. I was going to say the word winning several times. Because um, <laughs> I think winning is often left out of the conversation in left circles for reasons that befuddle me. So um, I want to start by saying winning. That's the point of the one-on-one. -on -one. Um, the point of structured organizing conversation is to build power. The point of a one-on-one -on -one conversation uh, is about winning. I mean, ultimately. So because it's where the political education begins. Um, and last I looked, whether it's, you know, Germany, the United Kingdom, the United States, or fill in the blank, uh, there are way too many millions and millions of people who are pulling the lever in the voting booth for crazy, insane people who are happy to kill them, right? Whether it's Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, you know, or whatever Marie Le Pen is doing. So, um, so we need, the point of that is that we need enormous, um, an enormous program of political education all over the world right now uh, with ordinary people who by social media and by other means are being very confused about who's to blame for the pain in their lives. So in a structure, because, because you, by definition in structure-based organizing, because people are not coming because they agree, the one-on-one -on -one is the essential beginning of any process to help people uh, plot a path to change in their lives and to victory and to the kind of political education that's going to be essential because the employer and the employer class obviously is not just going to sit back um, you know, and make it easy for people to come to political agreement. They're using racism, they're using immigrants versus non-immigrants, they're using nativism, they're gonna use gender, they're gonna use queer, not queer. All of it is at work every day in a, work, in a tough workplace campaign. 
and we could talk outside of it, but I think it's useful for this for this discussion just to keep inside the workplace. Um, though all the lessons I think translate. So um, in a workplace campaign, the employer is going to use every single uh, avenue of division and sowing mistrust that they can. And there is, I don't believe, I mean, I ask this question openly to people all the time. I don't believe that there is anything that has proven more effective at helping people confused about who's to blame for the pain in their lives than a really good one-on-one -on -one organizing conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and this kind of touches up on it already, but why do you need to have one-on-ones with everyone in that structure? Yeah, a um, few reasons. The first is, and, and, and who the we is, we should get to at some point too, right? But um, there has to be conversations among and between every worker um, because the first step, well, a related step, right? There are methods. So we're describing one of them, which is a structure organizing conversation. But the reason we do them with everyone is one, one of the first things we have to do in structure-based organizing is what we call identify the natural or organic leader. So who is the most trusted worker on each shift, in each work area, in each unit, um, who, that, who has the capacity because they have the trust already of their colleagues and their coworkers to help their coworkers uh, move uh, from thinking maybe the boss on the third shift isn't really a bad guy at all. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, and it's not even about the boss on the third shift, right? It's about the CEO and global capital who's actually making the decision in private equity about your employer. So whether I'm in a discussion with nurses in Berlin, you know, or nurses in the United States, private, same private equity people are like buying up all these companies. So the first thing is trying to help a worker understand it's really not about your manager on the third shift, by the way. You know, but who's going to help them understand that better is a trusted colleague. So the first round of why we do one-on-ones with everybody is to first understand, or as part of the one-on-one, -on -one, is to understand the power structure analysis among and between workers in the workplace. The power structure exists before anyone starts doing anything. So the question is, can you correctly analyze it? That's true on the outside the workplace too, right? Like there's a power structure, it exists. And I think, I think this is a, this part of the conversation is one that a lot of progressives um, struggle with because they want to believe that all good people of goodwill will just agree on things. Um, and they discount uh, the damning role of social media, mass media, Fox News, Sky News, fill in the blank. So, um, Finding and identifying the trusted person, and this is this concept that a lot of progressives and leftists struggle with, like the idea that some workers have more trust um, with their colleagues than others, itself is debatable. Um, and again, I'm just going to say that word winning, going to come back to winning, right, which is why we do this. So we have to talk to all the workers to understand this, the existing power structure among and between the workers as it exists. And then if we're doing our job correctly, we have to help the most trusted worker leaders who are already there before anyone shows up, you know? Um, and we have, to, we have to zero in on who they are because they are huge multipliers in the work. 
if you already have the trust of all of your colleagues, and then you say, when the employer says, take that button off your uniform, you want the most trusted worker leader who's very respected to actually say, I have the right to keep on this button and I'm not taking it off. Because at that point, it's a button, you know, in a campaign, something visual. At that point in the campaign, because, you know, fear, first they're going to do division, then they're going to do doubt, then they're going to go to fear, then they're going to go back to doubt, then they're going to go back to fear, right? There's, what the employer class does in society now is seen very well in the, in the union campaign, right? So, so, find, so we have to talk to everyone to understand who is it that most workers trust and look up to? That's the first reason we have to do one-on-ones with everybody. You cannot get an understanding of the power structure by looking at workers. You cannot just say, oh, that, that person speaks really well and they spoke up really well at the meeting, so they're a leader. That's what most of the left does, eh, failure. So um, I, understanding the people who have trust, natural leadership, we call it sometimes, organic leadership, natural leadership, we have to do one-on-ones with everyone. The second reason is because it's political education and you can't leave somebody out of a political education project. Um, yeah, I think uh, to go back to the question of um, that you said that we should also go back to on the question of we, um, if it's not say like a union organizer that comes in, but say I want to organize my coworkers for something and I don't have, let's say the luxury or the, the yeah, I don't have the luxury, right, of a, of a union that comes in to help. Um, doing fine. We can also cut later, et cetera. Um, <laughs> if I don't have the luxury of a union organizer to come in and help, say, like when I was at UAW 2865, we didn't have someone that could come in and really help us go through those things. Um, and if I'm, if I'm a coworker, and let's say a lot of the places don't have, like when you touched up earlier on the gig economy and digital work, um, you're constantly running from place to place, like going from contract to contract, perhaps one moment in Berlin, another moment in Estonia, another moment I have a contract in New York City. Um, it's pretty clear that the kind of organic leader depends on kind of a certain time to build ties and trust. And so uh, I wonder where the starting point is for people like, uh, like me that might be jumping from place to place and don't have that kind of stability of what would be the starting point in having one-on-ones in those cases where the organic uh, leader isn't readily identified because the, the turnover rate is too high. Or say when I talk to uh, food couriers on bicycles, um, the only times that they see their coworkers is when they're at a restaurant. They happen to be at the same restaurant, and that kind of overlap may be months between they see each other again at the same McDonald's to pick up food to deliver to someone. So what would be the starting point in those cases when you do one-on-ones? Yeah. Okay, two things. One is I think that part of why, I mean, part of why um, I am devoting time to the online Rosa Luxemburg-sponsored free organizing course uh, is, is because there will never be enough people um, to have like professional organizers running the revolution. It's not possible. It's literally not possible. And one of the only strategic advantages that I think the U.S. experience 
offers to the rest of the world because, you know, there's plenty that we should not offer to the rest of the world. And there's way too much that comes out of this country that's horrific, including union busting, spreading all over the world. Um, but, but because of the structure of the laws, I just want to explain this, because of the structure of the laws in the United States, if it's a private sector employer, which is, you know, most of my life work and most of the United States, uh, where we don't have much of a public sector to speak of, yeah. um, <laughs> we are, you know, we are literally not like a, a full-time union organizer is, will get arrested um, if you step on the property of the employer. So what that means is that we have to get very, very good at teaching everything we know how to do to every worker leader. Like that's the whole point of the online course. In addition to, it's just like me turning as many tens of thousands of people as we can into like the same bargaining team I'm working with in a, in a single employer fight, right? My job when I approach a workplace or when workers approach um, us to help them is the first thing we say to them is, okay, so here's the deal. It's gonna be all on you. Like we're gonna coach you and teach you. I'm a teacher. Like to me, organizing is teaching. I am a teacher of a certain skill set and a set of methods that workers themselves in very large numbers have had to and in way larger numbers will have to do if we're going to stop the madness of what's going on. So that's one thing. Like the, the we is that the workers have to do the work, period. And the workers do do the work. And it's not like some weird, you know, it's described in literally, you know, by in, internal left debate that I can't even, I, I can't even, I'm too busy actually teaching workers to when to bother responding to half of the debate about it. So um, I just can't stop to do it. I don't care because people are winning where, where we're doing work and they're, um, and they're doing the work themselves uh, as are all the teachers I was working with this morning, you know? So um, I think though, that there is an, there is an art and, and science to struggle and how to win. Um, and that's, that's what, that's what an organizer with the correct view of the world, which is that we're teachers, we're educators, basically, of like the science of struggle. Um, that's where we start. So um, that's one thing. It, it, to me, I teach and coach people. It's like, you know, I've been doing organizing for 30 plus years, and I understand every move the boss is going to make just about when they make it, literally. And that is not something that you know, a registered nurse or a or radiology tech learns, you know, in uh, in their medical degree program, right? So the idea that they know how to run the revolution automatically is kind of crazy to me. So so that's one thing. And then second, though, I think we are we are collectively, and I mean we the world, we are right now embroiled in the path to understand how to do the gig economy, quote unquote, how to do the platform workers. Um, better. I think it's like a learning process every day. Uh, but I think the principles hold. But, but I would say in the short term, what I have been arguing for and will continue to argue for is that we should focus primarily on building, rebuilding and building, rebuilding and building unions in places that are more structured mm -hmm. for the short term. Because it's a question of priorities. And it's, a, it's not, again, it's like leader ID versus activist. There's not, there's not a bone in my body that doesn't have the exact same sympathy, compassion, and sort of human love for a food delivery worker on a bicycle or a motorcycle as I do 
for a radiology tech in COVID. Like, I don't love or respect any one of those workers differently. As a strategist in a crisis, in a worldwide breakdown of systems, um, we better pick some places to dig in and dig in hard, or, or we're just scattering all of our effort. Uh, and scattering all of our effort is not going to help us win. So it is about making priorities and choices. I think the limited, I have not, so most of my work has been in what I would say are structured environments, more structured than less structured. But even in the workplace, as you're pointing out, you know, you could be a, a platform worker, but you could also be a home care worker uh, who is public sector still in the United States. Um, and they're scattered and they hardly see each other. Um, and so we have to create mechanisms and ways to find them that are a little bit different. Um, with home care workers in the United States, this would not translate everywhere, although it does translate more places than people think. You know, for home care workers, the, I organize them through the black church uh, in most cities because I can figure out where they're coming together outside of the workplace. And that's a way into people who have a way less work connected relationship so then it's trying to figure out where else do they need. So you mentioned a restaurant. I don't know enough about, I feel like I should just go become a bicycle, like change my name and be a bike uh, food service delivery person for a little while. Cause then I would get biking done and I would learn something about this, but the limited a bit that I've looked at it, I feel like with taxi cab drivers, childcare workers, other non-traditional workplaces, there are places where people gather and they know where they are. Like there is a restaurant, there is a diner, there is a space where people show up. And if you're organizing with them, you learn to tap into those spaces. So that's a good thing. And people should tap into those spaces. But so it may be a restaurant where they're delivering food from. It may be that you figure out a hierarchy of the restaurants themselves. Because I, I bet this is not knowing anything. If I began to think about Jane is told there's nothing I can do but go work in that sector for a little while. Like I would figure out... Um, by thinking very hard and by talking to everyone, like what are the ways in which they engage? So where are the spaces where they come together? How does the, I mean, the thing that worries me most about those workers right now is this level of surveillance, quite frankly, I'm on their phones. But um, so where do they come together? It's, an, it's also an argument for like why we do one-on-ones and shut your damn phone down and all your technology down because they're listening, by the way. So, um, you know, so, so, so it's both things. One is I, the, the limited amount of work I've done with workers who did not come into a school, did not come into the hospital, did not come into their janitorial, you know, headquarters, cleaning supply headquarters, et cetera. Um, I, I've taken the same methods and just had to think differently about where are the places where they can come together? What's the power analysis here? Is it is it, the is it the restaurants that are most expensive or the restaurant with most deliveries? Is it the restaurant where you get the biggest tips if you're the driver? Then I'm going to go to the rest. Then I'm going to go, then I'm going to focus on places where the biggest tips come from, because that means a bunch of workers who are really good at their jobs are going to shift to where the tips are biggest, right? In terms of the delivery service. So maybe it's a corporate office building that they're delivering to every single day. Um, then you figure, so like there's a whole way to think about mapping the power structure in that employment sector, I've not done it. But that's what I would be doing if I was in it, just straight away. Um, but, but, I'm, but I'm gonna make, continue to make an argument that as long as there are, there are big structured environments that are frankly a mess in most countries last I looked, like 
If there is a union, it's probably weak. So let's rebuild it. If there isn't a union, um, let's build it. And let's build it good from the beginning, right? Um, so any place where workers come together, including the giant Amazon warehouses or all of the warehouses that are connected to the just-in-time production system in sort of the, that's the online sector. It's like in the beginning, I'll just say this and stop, but like in the beginning when people were doing work in the US around Walmart, kind of from the very beginning, um, so this is like probably early 2000s, uh, co-workers of mine, you know, were involved in Walmart right before we had an Amazon. And they were really focused on, they were like trying to organize the retail workers. And to me, that was just not, A, not gonna work because they could be turned over in a second. They're the equivalent of today's platform workers. They can be hired and fired tomorrow and no one would even notice except the family that's now struggling to pay their rent. But from the employer's viewpoint, you know, in and out, in a heartbeat, they don't care. Same with retail in a, in a Walmart store. But the power analysis is on the warehouses and the transportation system that's moving the products and the goods around, right? So for every sector we're in, we have to analyze where's the chokeholds, where do people relate, which are which target is going to have the biggest impact. But I think for the moment, whether it's an Amazon warehouse um, or a school or university or a hospital, focusing on places where people regularly come together in a structured environment or at least semi-structured. Uh, is a way better use of the limited resources that a left that's in deep trouble uh, should focus on. I think that also makes, again, a very strong case to uh, to teach people to organize themselves because that kind of very specialized knowledge of where people come together that are not in a very traditional nine to five scenario is something that's very clear on the inside and, and very... Uh, cloudage on the outside. I think it's really yeah. speaks for for a lot of projects to make people aware that it is a method or a technique to organize and not some miracle that's owned by unions, for example. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a learnable practice. So exactly. Um, I would like to go back to this one if that's okay. I mean, I'm kind of mm -hmm. cutting it a little bit, but this if you would. Like, let's say we stay with the delivery driver who says, how do I do it? I know I meet my, my colleagues in all corners. How do I do a good one-on-one? -on -one? Can you like give like some cornerstones where you say these four points have to be in there or five or three? Or... Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, you know, the, the, I think there are a lot, I think there's a lot of sort of similar approaches to what I would call a structured organizing conversation. Some people have 12 steps, some people have 10 steps, some people have eight or seven. Um, I don't care how many steps you have, as long as the key components are covered in that one-on-one, -on -one, right? Um, I've chosen six uh, because I wanted to pick a number and make it a little simplified. Um, so I'm sticking with six, but you know, it was seven once in my life, it was eight months in my life. Anyway, um, the key is, are you hitting on what I think, I mean, so all six of the steps matter, but I think it's frankly in the method that I was trained in or the one I boiled down to the one I was trained in and modified. It's what I'm going to call steps two, three, and four. And I want to talk about what they are. So step one is your introduction. You know, that's different if you're a worker inside versus a worker outside. But by the way, it's no less meaningful. How purposeful you are in that point, what you say, um, how you engage with somebody, you know, from the opening minute that you're meeting them. 
uh, matters. So, but we're not going to get into a whole training on that because I want to focus on what you asked, which is like, what's the most important elements? And then step two uh, in a structured organizing conversation is where you begin, where you must, you must come away from step two, understanding what matters most to the person that you're talking to, in this case, a worker. Um, and the simplest way to get at that, it's not, it's actually not rocket science at all. It's just by asking them, if you could change three things at work tomorrow, what would they be? If you could change three things about your job, if you're a food delivery worker, if you could change three things about your job tomorrow, what would they be? I've never met workers who didn't have an answer. I've met workers who refused to answer because the union buster got to them first, but I've never met a worker in my life who didn't have an answer to that question. Um, so it starts there. And then, you know, and then in that same step, it's, it's a fine art between whoever, whoever doing the, or, whoever's doing the organizing, whether it's a coworker or a, out, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. Whoever is doing the organizing conversation um, has to make very clear that they get very specific issues. And the more specific the question is, the more specific the answer. That's why when I meet all sorts of people and they're like, yeah, hey, what are the issues in your department? And I'm like, oh God, Jesus Christ. The, you know, their husband's a jerk. The cat pissed on the pillow last night. I don't care, <laughs> you know, or the linen is in the wrong place or, you know, my car crashed yesterday and I got to get another one. Like that might tie back to material interest at work. But like the more specific the question, the more specific the answer, which is why I start every conversation with, you could change three things at work tomorrow. What would they be? It's a very specific question. I've asked it, I don't know how many tens of thousands of times at this point, and I get great answers. And from there, the worker says, you know, I feel like I carry, I, work never ends, work never ends. If that's what they say to me, if like the first thing they say is, I just want to like punch the clock or get off the platform or something, and I just need work to end when work ends. So that when I go home with my family, like I can actually just like check out, like let's say that that's what they say. That's the first way that they articulate it man, I'm going to have a lot of room to ply with what that means. Like, so what would you do? How would work be different? What would you do with your free time at home if you had more free time? Like there's, then I'm going to ask a ton of follow-up questions that relate to the very specific, um, you know, thing that someone wants changed. If it's a little bit general, like I just want work to stop when work stops, I'm going to be like, great. So tell me what that looks like. Like, what would that mean for you? You know, cause that means different things for every worker on the planet right now. Um, so my job Whoever is doing the organizing conversations job is to then ask a lot more specific questions around the very specific problem or challenge or things that that worker wants changed. And in that process, you're sliding into what we call agitation. So I think this is the same step. They're not separated. Um, as you are asking more and more questions, you are trying to help that worker uh, get angry at their employer quite frankly, because for a lot of people, it's very confusing. They don't understand why, you know, I was just in Berlin and in some meetings where I heard people say things like workers owning the boss's pedagogy, like taking over their brains, saying things like there's not enough money for good staffing like that. When you hear a worker say that to you, it's like, wow, the boss is in their head. So our job is to help get the boss out of their head. Right. Um, so the more we get into the issues, the more we can channel there. And I was actually doing a lot of training work on this because I think people are very not skilled on this point right now, um, is in a role play, I said, 
out of the middle of nowhere. Um, wait, with the amount of Mercedes Benzes that are driving around in the streets of Berlin, you're telling me that there's not enough money to have safe staffing in your hospitals, right? Like, <laughs> why do you think the employer is making it so that you don't have the staff you need to take care of patients in a pandemic? Like, you have so so it's getting what matters to them and then starting to get them angry and focused on who's to blame, not generally, you know, not some generic discussion about, yeah, that sucks. It'd be great if you had more staff. That doesn't help anyone, right? It's eventually getting to, so why do you think your employer is not um, actually providing staff that you need, given the amount of Mercedes-Benz that's driving around the streets today, right? And honestly, people in Berlin were like, wow, we would never have thought about asking that. I'm like, well, you better, you know what I mean? Because you got to get workers angry and then channel the anger. Unchanneled anger is a bummer. Channeled anger can lead to a huge victory. So you have to go from what's their problem to helping them understand. Like they start thinking, this is really unfair. Yeah, why are there? Why are, why are there some? Why is there all this money in this country we bailed out the tourism industry, but we can't take care of patients and nurses, right, or whatever the work is? So that's one is getting the issue. And if you don't deeply understand the worker's issue, and if you don't ask a lot of follow up questions that reflect back to them that you heard them, they're going to check out. So the point of the rest of those questions I was just asking is about making the worker know I'm deeply listening. I am deeply listening. I hear exactly what you just said to me. And every question I'm going to ask you in a follow-up is going to be specific to what you said you want to change. And organizers who don't do that, probably not going to hold that worker. So the worker has to feel heard. Who doesn't, you know, like the, the biggest problem in the world, you know, I mean, no boss is just right off their, you know, people don't listen to the working class. So it's like listening to people, honoring what they said to you, and then helping them understand why there isn't enough staff or, you know, why, why, why the food service delivery person can never shut the damn app off. Um, uh, when, you know, the, the guy who, you know, started the industry is, you know, having a $22 million ticket to go to, you know, play in space for five minutes, like there's a lot of ways to agitate. So, um, <laughs> and then step three, right, and then, so step two, three, and four um, are the ones uh, that I think, again, are crucial um, in a good organizing. I mean, they all matter, but like, if you don't do two, three, and four, right, you're going to lose the person, and then you're not going to win, and then you're going to lose, and I hate losing. So, then the third, the next step, like sort of step three, is what is typically called the education step, by which I mean helping raise their expectations that they actually might win and being able to very succinctly explain what the plan to win is. So we're also not very good at this on the left because we don't usually have a plan to win. So we're bad at explaining it, right? If you don't have a plan to win, like if you have a bad strategy, you can't do step three. So that, I'm just going to say in a provocative way, is most of the problem with the, with the left is like there isn't a credible plan to win. And so then it's hard to articulate it. If you have a real strategy and it's one that workers are shaping with you um, increasingly in a campaign, then you have to connect the exact problem that the worker raised to you. You have to put that in to a discussion about a plan to win and help the worker see how their decision to sign a petition or come to a meeting is going to directly connect to a larger plan to win in the campaign. And I use the word credible plan to win. Like if it's not, if it doesn't, if it sounds like pie in the sky, like, yeah, you're going to come to a meeting and then we're all going to agree. And then we're going to walk out. That is not a plan to win. 
And that is not going to convince most workers of anything, except I'm not going to bother to talk to this person and I'm going to try and avoid them the next time that they come try to talk to me, right? Which is what happens if you do a bad one-on-one, you've blown it, they don't want to talk to you again. So, and then the plan to win, the issue the person said embedded in how does does what I'm asking the worker to do, sign a petition, come to a meeting, come to a protest, show up at negotiations, any number of things I might be asking them to do in the next step, which is step four, right? Where we're calling the, calling the question or making the ask. The, the, the issue has to tie to the plan to win and the ask I'm about to make of that worker, whether I'm their colleague, right? I'm in a union in my workplace. We're in a struggle right now in my university about whether or not to reopen, what the rules are, blah, blah, blah. We're doing a survey right now about it. So whether I'm a coworker with people or whether I'm an outside organizer, um, I've got to connect the problem the person has, the person has to know I heard them, and then what I'm about to ask them to do has to connect the dots. That's what step three is. What I'm about to ask you to do, sign this petition, has to have been explained very carefully in step three, which is a credible plan to win. Because the likelihood that if they know I hear their issue that matters most to them, I connected that in a plan to win to why I'm now asking you to get ready to take a strike vote. Like those three steps have to connect. And then in the fourth step, and then I'll pause, I'll stop after this, but like the last key thing is, and maybe we dig into it more, but it's like, you can't succeed at the ask, in my opinion, if you're asking a worker to take risk, right? Most of my life involves asking workers to take risk, sometimes very serious risk. You can't, which is strike, all out strike is. You can't, you're not going to succeed at asking workers to take risk in step four in the conversation and, and, and signing a petition, you know, could be super big risk, right? A, a petition that their employer will see. That can be a very big risk, by the way. So you're not going to succeed in asking a worker who's scared um, about holding on to their job. You're not going to succeed in anything in step four if, if it doesn't relate directly back to step two to the issue that matters most to them. And if they don't understand why the action that you're asking them to take uh, is part of the plan to win, as opposed to like, I'm not going to go to the meeting. Everyone else is going to go to the meeting. You know what I mean? If that's their conclusion, then you're also not going to win because you need mass participation to win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we only have five minutes left. Um you have one precious question to ask? <sighs> Nothing that Jane could cover in five minutes. So they're all <laughs> really good questions. Um, but uh, is there something that you would like to close out with, Jane, that you think is a really important takeaway? I, we had questions on, like, where to have the one-on-one or, like, semantics um, or fighting past apathy, which you kind of covered. Um, or disbelief, right? Um, skepticism. You kind of just covered that one, which I think is really important. But I don't know which one of those sound good or something else that you think is a really good takeaway. Uh, you already covered a lot of the bases pretty well, <laughs> obviously. Um, I'm thinking. <laughs> um, I mean, I can try and just wrap a few of those, and then you, you ask me one short closing question. I can just try and wrap everything you just said into one bow. And then if there's something else you can ask, um, it isn't like I start exactly at two. I just have like, an, I have to read. 
20,000 documents of graduate students <laughs> stuff to me and then give them all feedback on why they're it's not working. But anyway, before I jump on with the whole team of people. Um, so I think that the, I think what matters when, when we talk about structured organizing and then what's a good organizing conversation, which again, I put the word structured in because I think it helps to have structure to a conversation especially when we're new at it and almost any worker by definition, unless they've been in an organized workplace and had a great union, they won't, you know, how to organize is not again, self-evident. So I think the key is methods. I think simple replicable methods really matter. Um, if we're going to try and train up millions and millions of ordinary people to lead the fights that need to be led in the world right now, methods matter. So there are some other ones that relate to a good structured organizing conversation. Um, one I talk a lot about is semantics. It's the words we use, literally. And the simplest thing I can say about semantics and the words we use are, are we centering the active participation of the person that we're engaging with in a one-on-one -on -one as crucial to the outcome of the problem in their life? right? I was sort of getting at that in my description. But the point is, if they don't see that their active participation is central to changing whatever the issue they told me in step two is, they're not going to participate because we're all exhausted every day, every minute. No worker, unless they're in the you know top 10% or 5% of the, even top 5% at this point, probably, no worker has enough time. None of us have enough time. So like the simple act of asking someone to do anything, especially show up at a meeting for God's sakes, is like, makes no sense unless we've centered step two, three, and four and frame the question by using the word you. Are you prepared? Are you prepared to take the first step to making it so that when you punch the clock, you actually can have a life with your family. Because the first step to doing that is signing this petition, right? And the petitions come out in the plan to win. And But if I don't say you, if I don't put it on the person I'm talking to, whether or not they're my colleague or not, if it's, if it's my coworkers, I already signed the petition. Now I'm coming to get your signature, right? There is some weird debate, like only full-time staff do this. That is so blazingly wrong. It's a worker-to-worker -worker conversation most of the time. Like I spend my time coaching workers and campaigns to go have those conversations. And now we're going to get to where they happen. A lot of the times they're happening in break rooms, right? If they're worker conversations, they're happening in the break room. They're happening in a parking lot. They're happening at a bus stop. They're happening on a metro ride. Um, and if you're going to have to have a really, really hard conversation, the best place to do it is away from work. There's just no question. The best place to have like a really deep engaged one-on-one -on -one is away from people's workplace and the boss is not watching, the fear is not happening and they can relax with you. But if it's worker to worker conversations, sometimes you have to have a lot of them. Um, and the best place to do that is out of the boss's view, um, but in a break room or a parking lot or fill in the blank, right? So, and that's why getting good at it matters, like getting it shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter um, is a helpful thing if you're on a, if you have thousands of workers to talk to in a short period of time. So. Ideally, these conversations happen away from the workplace in a cafe right across the street or down the road or around the corner. 
Um, but they often happen in the break room. The key is that they should not happen in front of your employer. So standing outside of the plant gates, just to put a point on it, is not a great place to have these conversations. Um, and then I think the last thing I'll say is just, I, you know, I think, I think that the, I think that there is this weird debate that's going on right now, and probably has gone on forever, just right now in my life, um, where people literally seem to not give a shit about winning. And so there's like some whole intellectual blathering debate going on about who does this work and blah, blah, blah. blah. Um, and at the end of the day, I'm just going to say what one of the first workers in a campaign that I ever had the pleasure of helping them lead to victory was, which was like, when I was refusing to answer, <laughs> we're in this big, important meeting, hugely dramatic moment in the campaign, you know, where there's an offer, we could go on strike, we could not go on strike. And I'm like super young and I'm being like, I, I, I can't have any opinions here. I should have no opinion in this conversation because I'm, I'm not actually a worker here. And, you know, it was several hospital workers who were really serious leaders in the back of the room, like hundreds of people in this room, a lot of tension in that moment and a bunch of leaders finally, and they were all debating it. And I was like, this is the thing to do. My job is just to get them talking. And a bunch of workers in the back of the room finally just said, everyone shut up, like screaming. And they were well-respected leaders. And so people like, shut up. And they looked at me across the room and they said, look, McAlevey, you've been doing this a long time. You probably actually know what the boss is going to do next. And we have no idea what the boss is going to do next in this campaign because we have never done this before. So your advice would be useful right now. You know, and it was like, and then you go out into the world of like left debate and people are like, Oh, the workers are going to rise up and have revolution. Not work, not any worker I've ever met in any campaign. No actual worker in an actual real fight for something that matters has ever said to me anything but please talk more. My job is to not talk. You know what I mean? But like there are methods. The point is to teach them to millions of people as fast as we can because they work. Jane. Thank you so much for coming on. We really <laughs> appreciate your time. We really appreciate your contribution to the toolbox. And uh, you enjoy your breakfast. Really lovely to be with you. Uh, happy to do it again. Uh, this is just a, I, I don't know, I keep saying this is just a particularly insane moment. I've been saying that the whole pandemic, by the way, for the record. But Thank you for tuning in to Spadework Podcast, an educational project by Werkstatt für Bewegungsbildung, a movement school dedicated to providing ordinary people with the tools capable of building resilient, rewarding, and effective political organizations. Please find a link to the Werkstatt in the description. This project is made possible by so many labors. We'd like to thank the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung and Rohr Magazine for their comradely support. Thank you.